0: Hello, and again, welcome to BitDepth. I'm Santiago Ramones. Across from me is...
1: Bailey Gilbert.
0: Thank you so much for doing this with me. Uh, All those networking events that are happening are actually like doing work and actually allowing people to network. So this yeah.
1: (laughs) Right. No, thank you for inviting me. It is great to get to just show up and be like, follow me on Instagram. Let's do cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. Just do it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that is the, I mean, one thing is I'm trying to get more Oklahoma musicians on the podcast. I had a year of awkward remote interviews with like, I guess, anyone who would do it.
1: Right. Uh, Quarantine procedures.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so... It, it got a little bit like weird and out there for a while. And now I'm like, well, now that we can have local meetups with people that I know in the industry that I'm in, we can do that. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> of
1: course. Thanks. I didn't realize it was a prerequisite to not make it weird. So that might be unsuccessful today.
0: Oh, no, but... uh, <laughs> please make it weird. It's more like weird as in less context that I'm familiar with.
1: <laughs> oh, OK. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, But we're both musicians, so uh, who are you? What do you do?
1: (laughs) Yeah, my name is Bailey Gilbert. I am a singer-songwriter from Oklahoma. I live in Norman right now and play at the deli and the Bonnet pretty frequently and just around the OKC area when I can.
0: Yeah. Uh, What do you play? What are you singing about?
1: (laughs) Right. um, I play guitar. At most of my gigs, I play mandolin, piano and bass and ukulele at my house, but none of them are great for solo acoustic work. Um, I write songs that are very autobiographical, so they're very honest and usually emotional. make a lot of jokes about making people sad or songs about trauma. So
0: yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I everyone writes a lot of those and it's always right. kind of Difficult to, I guess, present it in front of an audience because there's some level of balance between you want to express yourself, and then there's the people are watching, and I want to entertain.
1: Oh, definitely. Mm. Well, and I got my start when I was 14. Mm. I started playing publicly and writing and performing original songs. Mm. And I started kind of in the bluegrass Americana folk vein. And definitely for the first few years of playing, I was straight pandering. Mm. Just uh, I would think of clever hooks and I really wanted to write good songs rather than honest songs, which is fine. I think you have to learn to write well. but it really wasn't until the last few years that I've started writing songs that are more for the purpose of the process of writing and performing them and how it makes me feel and less about how people might perceive them.
0: Yeah. And so then you have to find a different route by which you can entertain people because it's still live performance is still entertainment but it's also a kind of selfish catharsis for ourselves as well
1: oh definitely there's a fine line between like leaning into a note to play it up to the audience and then leaning in because it's an emotional significant moment Mm -hmm. and hopefully like you can find an audience and niche that creates a vibe or like environment that feels like it's an active feedback Mm -hmm. and like the more emotion you give the better they
0: respond
2: yeah
1: or I've been really lucky to find crowds like that sometimes.
0: Yeah. And that is kind of the challenge as well, uh, especially given that Oklahoma isn't exactly known for its huge, vibrant live music scene. We do end up playing at a lot of bars and the yeah. vibe of bars ends up being people trying to get lit.
1: And I th- Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a little frustrating because Oklahoma historically has a great background in music. Mm-hmm. And if you look at Tulsa, Tulsa used to have such a vibrant jazz community mm-hmm. back when Tulsa was also allowed to have a black Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, before, you know, there was a lot of racial punishment that happened in our communities. Mm-hmm. Our music communities were dramatically affected by that. Yeah. And so I think that there is still a really pervasive blues and rock and roll, um, rootsy influence in a lot of Oklahoma music. And so we have a lot of like sub genres that are unique to our area, but at the same time, yeah, it's weird. It's a very specific Mm
2: -hmm.
0: community. Yeah. Uh, I guess, well, yeah, you had mentioned how you started in, uh, Americana and stuff like that. Mm So what, what was your foundation? How did you get started? Why?
1: Oh yeah, okay. I um, well, I grew up and was raised in southeastern Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and then went to high school and college in Stillwater, more in central. And um, I grew up on country music mm-hmm. and wrote and performed country bluegrass, yeah. and. As I came to actualization um, in my late teen years, I really started rejecting a lot of the opinions and a lot of the messages conveyed in country music. Yeah. And so that impacted me sonically because I kind of shied away from things that I didn't agree with. Um, so I definitely came from like a folksy bluegrass foundation, but sought out a lot of like Towns Van Zant like Bob Dylan, um, more singer-songwriter Americana, to Bruce Springsteen and, like, rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Where, I mean, that is kind of where that blurs into just more rock and roll and stuff anyways. and
1: Becomes about instrumentation more than anything.
0: Sure, yeah. (laughs) Um, I guess, so what was your first musical experience, I guess, either whenever you first realize that like music is awesome or your first even performance?
1: Well, I, I grew up performing vocally in choirs really poorly and dancing. I was not actually very talented. Uh, and when I was 14 and I became a very mediocre guitar player, it was very evident very quickly that my songwriting was where I stood out more and what was going to get me like positive response and gigs and stuff like that. Uh, so I had to learn how to perform a lot of covers and, um, So I guess my first musical experience was being 14 or 15 and playing the bar scene in Stillwater, playing with a lot of Red Dirt artists who were mainly grown men that were very much more like rambunctious Mm -hmm. and kind of finding that rowdy line between like rootsy country singer songwriter stuff that's really hard to define.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember what your first song is about? first song you ever wrote? Do you still yeah, have it?
1: Yeah, I do. The first song I ever wrote was called Dreamer, and it was about liking someone who was with another person and feeling like that other person was bad for them or dishonest with them, and they didn't realize it. Yeah. And so it was very angsty and yeah, Avril Lavigne. And 14. 14-year-old. 14 yes. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: cool. <laughs> and then I guess so... Where did you go from there and how, I guess, how did your moving away from the more country feeling uh, change you as an artist and yeah, where did you go?
1: Yeah, well, I think, I guess it's important to provide context that I loved all kinds of music and I've always been a sucker for pop and rock and anything that... um, is just very fun and upbeat and dancey as well. I'm a really big fan of rap. I'm a really big fan of like soul music. And just to say that I have a diverse listening catalog, but I always felt really limited in what I could express Mm -hmm. because I was like, well, I'm a girl from Southeastern Oklahoma with a heavy accent. Mm -hmm. And I know that I can pull off this kind of country thing. And so when I was a teenager, it was very much about what I knew I could get away with. Mm -hmm. And, um, I guess moving away from country helped me explore what is it about music that resonates with me personally and how can I isolate those elements rather than trying to just fit into a category I've chosen for myself.
0: Yeah. Who are your biggest influences now?
1: Mm. Maggie Rogers, um, Jack Antonoff in Bleachers as a producer. He's fantastic. Arctic Monkeys are high up there. This is always hard for me because there's oh, yeah, a big yeah. list. Yeah, it's a big list. Um, I yeah. love Nothing But Thieves. Mm-hmm. I would say probably sonically Phoebe Bridgers, Julianne Baker, Lucy Dacus are all going to be my biggest direct influences. Mm-hmm. But lately I've been listening to a lot of Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles from my childhood. Yeah. And then a lot of—actually, um, 2000s Rock, a lot of Incubus, and mm-hmm. Staying in Three Days Grace has been going mm-hmm. on yeah, lately. Yeah. So.
0: Um, I feel like early Incubus is really underrated and people forget just how crazy and weird it was.
1: There was like this driving momentum in the baselines mm. of Incubus that I really still go yeah, crazy yeah. about. Oh, I guess Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm-hmm. So high up there for me. Foo Fighters, so high up there for me. Mm.
0: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so then I guess since you started in music as a teenager... Was there ever a point as you became an adult that you had to decide that like, oh, music is what I'm doing with my life? Or was it always kind of there?
1: Yeah, Um When I first started pursuing music as a teenager, I was very aware that it was the plan B, that like my plan B needed to be my plan A. Mm -hmm. I was very college and academia driven Mm -hmm. and originally went to school to pursue chemical engineering. Yeah. And um, calculus convinced me not to do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to strategic communications. But when I went to college... Um, there was definitely this whole feeling of adulthood in the different stages of my life where I was like, I guess I'm, I haven't made it yet. Like I can't do it as a career yet. So I'll, I'll keep moving forward in this other plan. And it's really only been in the last couple of years that I'm kind of trying to merge the two of just being a happy, productive, working adult and a gigging musician.
0: Simultaneously. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And to to have it be where music is not something I have to really make a commodity but at the same time it doesn't deprive me from any kind of success or comfort.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what is something that you're trying in your songwriting now that maybe is a little out of your comfort zone but you're you're glad that you're sort of foraying into the stuff or or just like what is the cutting edge for you in your writing?
1: Yeah, I've been expanding my topic matter a lot. I've been writing songs about things that I've been speaking of for a long time, but wouldn't have felt comfortable in a song form. Um, I have a song now about eating disorders. I have one about, uh, sexual assault, feeling unsafe as a woman. I have one about kind of religious indoctrination in your childhood and xenophobia. I have a lot of ones that are a little more, um, Widespread in the topics, and every time I play them, oh, I have one about trickle down economics. <laughs> and anytime I play those, I'm waiting for someone to be very angry with me for that opinion. So,
0: well. Uh, if it hasn't happened yet, maybe you could just keep educating people. It's
1: Thanks. Great. <laughs> yeah, we know we're just doing it as long as we can get away with it yeah. in general.
0: <laughs> and then once people get mad about it, then you have more incentive to keep doing it.
1: <laughs> right. Then it can be vindictive and vindicating. So.
0: <laughs> Why music?
1: I am a person who has a running consciousness all the time. Mm. And when I was really, really young... I often replace that running consciousness with a song. Mm -hmm. And so there's just always music playing, even when there's not music playing. It's a really core part of my thought process. If I lay in a room quietly, a song will pop up. Mm -hmm. Just to say, I kind of don't have an option anymore. Yeah. (laughs) It's either going to be an asset um, for expression where I can meet people and make connections, or it's going to be, sorry, or it's going to be a... um, just a need on its own.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess so I have to ask about the chemical engineering and then strategic communications. Uh, so I guess like, because I, I had that maybe not in the same way because even when I was starting in college, it was like, oh, I'll do like music teaching instead of just like performance and stuff. So it's like, was was the plan A your like second priority in your mind? And like, I guess what drove you to those instead of like fully seeking out music to begin with?
1: Yeah, I think that I was always raised to be very realistic and pragmatic Mm. when it came to like success and security. Mm. I My parents were divorced and I was raised by a single mom for a large part of my childhood. So I think it was just reflected to me to always be successful in my career and independent financially. And I was really high achieving academically as a kid. So when I was in high school, kind of the highest esteemed thing that I could do at the same time was a pre-engineering uh, course at the uh, Technology Center, Meridian. Mm-hmm. Had a great time. I was the only girl out of like mm-hmm. 35 students for the first year and a lot happened with that. but. uh it was a great experience. And I guess just to say that um, in 2013, STEM fields was like, if you're smart and you want to be successful, you're going to go into STEM. Yeah. And so I bought into it, picked chemical engineering because it seemed the most appropriate with what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Got into it, did not enjoy it, yeah. was not good at it. <laughs> Went to communications because I've always been good at bullshitting. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's what it is.
0: It Well, it's funny. Well, it's a lot more, but yeah. Right, right. Well, it's funny because <laughs> like... Kids who are, like, academically successful uh it, without, you know, being around the bush, like, are really good at bullshitting. Like, I, I had good grades in school. Good enough. I wasn't, like, the best. But, like, yeah, it was just we learn how the system works and then we fuck with it.
1: Yeah, well, the public education system was originally designed to create good factory workers. It has not been drastically modified since then. It is not for any kind of purpose of increasing your capacity for learning or building real life skills. I am very, very good at receiving direct instruction, following it to a T, and not making waves. Mm -hmm. And um, I think after... 12 years of doing that, like, developmentally, it impacts you as a person. And so a lot of kids who did that well are frustrated that the rest of the world doesn't adhere to the strict rules and system that we were taught to play within the whole time. Yeah. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that goes... Hand in hand with like the pressure to go to college. And then once we get out of college, it's like, no, there's no actual guaranteed job for you. We gave you this path only to lie to you at the end.
1: Well, and to get you obligated, hopefully with debt, to continue pursuing further betterment, to make more money in positions that may or may not be available when you get there. Yeah. While inflation rises. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 2021. It's a good time.
0: Yeah. Uh we've created this uh, prison for ourselves and it's great we we're well, hoping the system will collapse we
1: we know one <laughs> we know one i've had like 6 years as an adult i've affected very little change or impact i'm putting the blame firmly on the people who, <laughs> who have been adult for longer and who are benefiting from the system and
0: reinforcing it yeah but yeah no it's not like there's anything i can do about it
1: right just yeah. to say let's not be too hard on ourselves
0: yeah, yeah, that's true. There are true. people
1: paying really good money to keep this up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know how to, like, transition away from the the darkness there, but uh, let's go into, like, the broader philosophical musical questions, which is, uh, is there such a thing as bad music?
1: I think yes, because there can be music that's poorly made for bad reasons.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that... There's a lot of elitism in the music communities. I think that mainly it is just whatever is needed for people to think that whatever teenage girls like is like demonic or embarrassing as can all be. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think there's such a thing as bad music.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then I guess what to you makes good music? And that is obviously just your opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I really have pop sensibilities. I like a good, strong melody and hooks and repetition. Mm -hmm. I like for stuff to be cohesive and clever. But really anything that's openly honest and communicative that does like an effective job at communicating a unique idea or a common experience, that's going to resonate on some level. Yeah. So.
0: Thank you for being, uh, I guess, one of the rare people that I hear actually use or use the word communication on top of music, because I don't hear enough people say that like, yeah, music is communication. So yeah. Thanks.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it becomes obvious if you work in like the music industry and you also overlap with communications as you do, Mm -hmm. um, that becomes intertwined. And if we're being 100%, when I switched from chemical engineering to strategic communications, I told a lot of my friends at the time, This will be useful if I do decide to pursue music full time. When I get out of college, I'll be able to manage myself. I'll know how to promote everything. And it is all true. And now I understand why those are all separate paid positions that many people work for each artist.
0: And it's a pressure that we put on ourselves as independent artists to do all of it.
1: And to do it before we wake up in the morning so we can do all of our other stuff when we're supposed to do that.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, And you mentioned sort of like how intention goes into what makes good or bad music. So um, do you separate art from the artist?
1: To a certain degree, mm-hmm. to a certain degree. I think um, there is fantastic art that has been made by awful people, yeah. graduation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 808's and heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the sense of there are lots of people who I think were very prominent, who had a really great moment, who were greatly impactful on music. Um, Sometimes I have a really hard time if I know that someone was a hateful or bad person or harmful. I can't really listen to their music and not hear that come out because those people also tend to express that in their music.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's funny that that question always ends up just being a Kanye question.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I I think of Chris Brown more easily, sure. just because he he really did have a lot of a comeback, and Kanye just kind of stayed right where he was and transformed in front of us. Yeah, which it is what it is. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of like cultural significances to Kanye in his career, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of like musical significant like contributions he's made. Yeah, but there's a reason why he always comes up.
0: Yeah. And it's because he's an asshole.
1: Yeah. I guess on another note of that, are you familiar with Pine Grove?
0: Uh, It rings a bell, but I don't know what.
1: They're just an indie band that um, they had some accusations come out and their lead singer tried to address them appropriately. And there's a lot of different opinions on whether or not they did as a band address it appropriately. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's one of those instances where I'm like... Is this about the person or the topic? Is this about the artist or the topic? I do think that you can go too far in either direction, I guess is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Well, and for me, actually, this is often a question about the band Brand New. I don't know if you listen I to Brand do. New. Yeah. I do. And I was actually, <laughs> before you got here, I was wearing a Brand New shirt. And I was like, wait, I don't know where she's at with that. I'm going to change shirts. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, I appreciate the consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that, I really just try and honor that everyone who felt violated in is given a safe space to express that and to communicate what was violated. I think that the whole purpose of reporting and bringing something to community attention is not for us to decide punitive Mm -hmm. behavior, but for it to be appropriately addressed. So once it's been appropriately addressed and a decision has been made one way or the other, I do tend to just go with that decision. Mm -hmm. Brand New, I think, is an example of that for me.
0: Yeah. And, And that is hard because it's like... You yourself as a consumer have to decide whether or not you forgive the transgressor. And even if those transgressions weren't against you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also like there's this weird feeling of like, do I have the right to forgive this? Um, Individual responsibility is a really weird concept (laughs) in all forms. Mm -hmm. But as a music fan, it's very odd.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I still don't listen to their second album.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I will admit all my stuff is very old tracks, the stuff that I'm aware of and listen to.
0: Mm-hmm. And there, there's a very specific track on their second album that is like very specifically the whole thing that like the allegations like it's it's sort of a poetic representation of basically what he was doing at the time. And I just can't listen to that song anymore.
1: (laughs) No, no. I think that's very valid. Um, The Pine Grove band I mentioned had Mm. done that as well, like addressed it in their new albums. Mm. Um, That was one, though, where it was like someone was like, hey, I think the power dynamic made consent really blurry. And they were like, "Okay, like, let me go to trainings. Let me take a break off of tour. Let's delay this next album while I get my head on straight to make sure that I don't do this to anyone else. So I think that method of handling it versus Mm. other methods of handling it makes a big difference.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, doing the work.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's the definition. If you're going to apologize, there's like a promise of doing different next time, which mm-hmm. means doing work to make sure next time is different.
0: Exactly. So. <laughs> but I guess on that train of thought on like artistic integrity, what is selling out? Is there such a thing?
1: I think that there. Is such a thing as selling out, I think that it's a uniquely individual concept. Mm -hmm. I think that it is, by definition, an artist doing something they don't morally agree with in order to be more successful. Or spreading a message that is harmful that they don't agree with. I think that most of the time when you say that someone has sold out, you mean, they sonically changed and I don't
2: like it.
0: Right. Um, Do you... Are there artists that you feel have sold out or do you feel like it doesn't even matter.
1: Honestly, if an artist has sold out, they probably just lost me as a listener somewhere along that journey. Mm -hmm. If whatever you pulled me in is somehow compromised later in your career, like whatever trait it was that had my interest, Mm -hmm. I'm going to notice that's eroded. I guess um, one artist that I would say that for, and I don't know if this is a super appropriate, but Katy Perry, mm-hmm. when I was younger, I did really enjoy her music and like have drastically turned around to where I avoid it just because I don't tend to like it. Mm-hmm. And also the content of it is not ca- the kind that resonates with me. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. that's good.
0: Right. And, and then the other hard part about it is that like us as starving artists, if we were put in that situation, it's hard to know whether or not we actually would or wouldn't sell out, you know? So.
1: Right. Well, and I really think it depends on your definition of sellout. I think that the idea that every project that you ever make has to be like a perfect representation and encapsulation of your aesthetic and niche and vibe is a little silly. And I think that Often I hear sellout whenever bands will take breaks and the individual members will do separate projects Mm -hmm. and then those projects will get more or less success vis-a-vis they might come back together. I think that that's just, I think it's all very um, entitled to have that commentary on other artists. I think that I would not judge other artists for becoming successful, even if it meant that they changed their sound or something or changed their aesthetic. But I would judge them if they, compromise their moral integrity yeah, which would be difficult to do
0: yeah <laughs> uh, no i mean and and that's the hard part too like as an indie artist and especially like with the state of the music industry as it is like at this point signing to a record label is like effectively making a deal with the devil uh and so it's <laughs> like it's hard to say it it's like that is a lot of money though
1: You know, it really—but you have to ask yourself, like, if you were in the tech industry Mm -hmm. and you had, like, a friend who had the opportunity to sign on for, like, project management for an oil and gas company and it was, like, a fantastic thing, would you resent them for working at a job that maybe didn't have a fantastic impact for a short period of time if it got them a lot of success, it provided financial security— I guess that I just am like, we live in like a slave capitalist society. It's really hard for me to judge you for getting bread when it's literally about like getting bread.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, I can I kind of do. It, like, if if I do have friends that effectively do work in like an oil and gas field, and it, it is a little bit like they know it, I know it, right? And it's like. This sucks.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, it's kind of like when you're like, oh, I'm a teenager. Like, I have no good options for employment other than monopoly corporations. And I also have to make money because I don't have experience. Mm. And just, I don't know. I just, it's all hard. We all have our climb. I think that it's what you do with authority and power Mm. that I'm a lot more critical of. Yeah. So, like, if they got into the position at those jobs and then continued really harmful policies and, like, kept climbing into that, we probably
0: wouldn't be friends for very long. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I like that nuance in that. Um, I guess last question on the musical front. What advice do you have for people that are wanting to do music?
1: There's a difference between taking it seriously and taking it, like, hard or taking it too far. Mm -hmm. I think that you can be very serious about your craft, very serious about your art, very serious about your livelihood if you're using your music as such. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think understanding what a toss up the industry is Mm -hmm. and how networking is everything in any industry, but especially this one. Mm -hmm. So just, if you're in music to be successful, it's going to be uncomfortable. You have to be in music for the enjoyment, whether that's writing, performing, or recording. Find your niche that you love, get really, really good at it, and then see if success comes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very nice, pragmatic advice. I appreciate that.
1: Thanks. It comes from a very (laughs) unsuccessful 24-year-old, so everyone should definitely live their lives by what I
0: say. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely no one is ever qualified to ever give any advice anywhere, but like, you know,
1: your life is different, time and society change every time, but <laughs> if, you, if you do what I say,
0: Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Switching gears into the deep questions. fun. What is the role of spirituality or religion in your life?
1: A very fluid one. <laughs> um, I was raised Baptist. I am an atheist. Mm. When I was in college, I was president of the secular organization on campus. So I spent a lot of time organizing events like Ask an Atheist Day mm. or a Bill Nye Science Guy movie screenings, uh, things like that. I received a lot of backlash. I got a lot of death threats. Mm. I got a lot of interesting knowledge and perspectives. <laughs> um, I'm still an atheist. Mm. That's yeah. kind of where I'm at.
0: Yeah. And... So it's a interesting thing cuz like I'm also an atheist but it's it's one thing to fall out of religion and just kind of quietly not believe anymore and then it's another thing to fall out of religion and be a sort of totem pole for
1: definitely
0: a school. So I guess what drives what drove you to the point of like jumping all the way on the other side of the pendulum?
1: Yeah. I think the, the obvious blatant disregard of separation of church and state mm-hmm. was the motivator. Like as a secular organization, my primary thing was to promote like science and mm-hmm. education and technology and development and progress and then voting secularly. Mm-hmm. The idea that Your official government legislation should not reflect someone else's personal religious beliefs and that their beliefs should not infringe upon my personal freedoms. Which right now, Oklahoma especially, has several legislative actions that do exactly that. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. And it's very difficult in the state of Oklahoma and especially growing up uh, where you did. Bible Belt Man. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That yeah again, it's being a lightning rod in a place where the uh, retaliation comes down much harder than it would anywhere else, so I guess what was some of your experience on that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think for me, the issue of gender equality is inherently tied into religion, mm-hmm. just because Christianity and especially Baptist denomination is very binary. Mm-hmm. Very sexist. Women can't hold leadership positions over men. Um, All of the doctrine is about, you know, bowing to your father, bowing to your husband, being a good mother, being like a servant of God, which means being a servant of your husband. And I guess um, I just think that there are really, really, really harmful sexist messages put into it. And so by the time that I got to college and was louder about it, I had already experienced a lot of it. Yeah, a lot of pushback and a lot of violence and a lot of anger about being a young woman who couldn't keep my opinions that it didn't make sense to myself.
0: Mm -hmm. Where was the turning point? Cause, okay. So actually I'll tell a smaller story beforehand, but like, so you, on the Google form, I have like, what questions do you have for me? And you asked me about like why spirituality is like a point in the podcast. And it's because I kind of had that similar experience in that I was raised very Catholic. And then I fell out of religion and fell out really hard. And so that was a huge turning point in my life. And it was very significant because it sort of was a part of my identity that I suddenly had to reshape. Yes. And so uh, that's basically why is that we do shape our identity in large part based on these spiritual beliefs. And regardless of who you are or where you're from or how you were raised, you at some point have had to come face with some form of spiritual opinion.
1: Right, right. Even if it is just like an ambiguous agnostic for life, like, and I don't get involved in the obvious craziness.
0: Yes. But like, yeah, and even those people still...
1: Have their opinions. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so... Yeah. So for you, what is that story of being raised Baptist and then what eventually chipped away at it until you... (laughs) Came through. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. The, the behavioral expectations mm-hmm. and the, the cognitive dissonance of what I was taught and what I was experiencing were the main ones. I think that a calling card of modern Christianity and modern religion in general is hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And I really, really struggled to be told that I was going to burn in hell and have eternal damnation for just thinking the baby versions of what I was watching people do around me all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When I was, 10 and my parents got divorced, we were kicked out of our church Mm -hmm. because my mom wouldn't publicly apologize Mm -hmm. for having a divorce. Mm -hmm. Um, And just to say that there were a lot of social repercussions, a lot of community repercussions, and it was all hypocritical, and it was Mm -hmm. all socially motivated, and it was all a form of behavior control. And so I would say that that was probably when I realized that like the God of the church was different than the God of my family. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, realized that the God of my family was also not my God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really didn't come until I was 17 or 18 and going to college and dating a guy seriously and having to kind of fully confront myself with who I was and the way that I still thought and then the woman that I had been told I needed to be.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um was it was it more like ideas percolating or was there also like a a level of research into it as well
1: Everything I do
0: includes research
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a heavy reader. Mm. I was a huge reader. I will say, okay, how about this? My first religious awakening was reading the Chronicles of Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. Mm. I read all seven of them when I was a preteen. And it was very clear to me that it was a metaphor for Christianity. Mm. And in the final book, there's a moment where Narnia is like collapsing and the characters are going to the afterlife. Sorry for spoilers. It's been out for so long. It's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) But the, um, there's a moment where they are all going through the doorway and they're being collected either by Aslan or like the demonic representation, which was very racist, but whatever, C.S. Lewis. Anyway, um, but the people who had done things for good and in the name of good, it didn't matter what God that they had done, that they had been worshiping while doing those things, they were sent to heaven. And then the people who were evil or had done bad, even the ones who had done that in the name of Aslan and were religious figures went to the hell of the universe. And so for me, That kind of doorway from Christianity and the set rules into, like, vague morality and good and bad and justness and eternal karma, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. That was really eye-opening. I couldn't resonate with a lot of the biblical stuff after that.
0: Yeah. And C.S. Lewis is sort of notably, like— divisive in...
1: Yes, because he's, you know, largely a Christian, like, herald in a way, but a lot of his works encourage people to move away from faith. Um, I think that maybe he was just not as far on the journey of thinking things. (laughs) Or he had more connection to it. His his Christianity probably never demeaned him the way that mine did. Mm -hmm. So...
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I did read Mere Christianity as I was like trying to hold on to the last hopes of holding on to Christianity, and uh, it didn't work. (laughs) No,
1: no, it never really does. And I've read the Bible in, I think, its entirety. Mm -hmm. I've copied down books of the Bible by hand before. Mm -hmm. I participated in like speed Bible verse contests and VBA stuff when I was a kid. I was very devout and dedicated my life to missions because I was a child and I wanted to be a good person.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and somehow those two were linked. <laughs> somehow that was
1: the only way to do that. Yeah. So, <laughs>
0: um, okay. So, I guess naturally, not really, but uh, <laughs> just going to my next questions. Uh,
1: yeah. Don't worry about segues. I'm terrible uh, at. <laughs> oh no, no, no!
0: But like, yeah, is humans like having things have some sort of narrative? Then so. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> what is your definition of God?
1: I think that there is—the difference between religion and spirituality is the difference between God and a higher power Mm -hmm. for me. I think that there is another aspect of our existence, which is commonly referred to as divinity, the soul, energy, Mm -hmm. connectivity, like the life force, whatever you want to call it, the Holy Spirit. I believe that that is the thing. I don't think anyone, I don't think I understand it yet. I don't think we as a general society understand it. And I don't either. So I can define God, but it would be the way that people define God, which I don't think is right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, cool. At least there was also something like, and this is what I appreciate about the question is that like, no one actually has the same definition. No. And that's that's pretty neat.
1: <laughs> well, and I think that's too, the spirituality-religion distinction, that religion is organized and spirituality is individual. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't found a religion that I could say my spirituality belongs to yet. Mm-hmm. But I do still have a spirituality, um, even if it's just the idea that like... We have evolved. We've been given a great opportunity entirely by statistical chance. And I am going to take advantage of it by being as much my existence as I can. Mm -hmm. That's it.
0: Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then off of that, what is free will?
1: Free will to me is the ability to make your own decisions with an accurate understanding of the situation you're in. Mm. So I think that free will is something that develops as we grow, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's different for everyone where like your free will kind of comes to fruition, because I think that, I think that the mental structures that we teach to people that people often have inflicted upon them and or formed through trauma or their life, I think that there's a point of overcoming those where you actually obtain free will again, and you're no longer being influenced by things that have impacted you in that way. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, Are
0: I guess... How do you know? Is there a way of knowing?
1: No, we could we could come to the end of this and it could have all been predestined and written out. And in that case, um, I wouldn't have had a choice in the first place. Mm. So no shame in being wrong. Yeah,
0: Yeah, not not so much. How do you know? As in that answer, but I guess, how do you know based on your definition of free will that you have free will? I guess is the...
1: Oh, well, I guess I feel like I'm still currently developing my free will. Mm -hmm. I think that there are still a lot of things that I'm unlearning. I think I'm still forming my opinions and who I am as a person. And I don't think that you have to be fully self-actualized to make an independent decision. I just mean that I'm aware right now that my choices are still very colored by other people. Mm -hmm. And I look forward to a time when they're less so, or it's more deliberate when they are.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Cool. What do you think happens when we die?
1: I think that nothing truly disappears. It's only transformed. Mm-hmm. I think that as our body is organically, you know, decomposed and becomes a part of the organic cycle again, I think that there's probably an equivalent of that for whatever our divinity or spirit or soul is as well.
0: Yeah. Cool.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that you just become a part of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I have that idea supported by some of the looking into what I've done of organ transplants mm-hmm. and ge- like genetic memory yeah. and um, organic memory and the idea that we probably store aspects of ourselves places other than our brain. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting
0: to me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially stuff like studying the, the human gut and the gut biome and how most of I think there's more DNA inside of us that isn't our DNA, which is neat. (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yeah, there's like studies done about like you can change the gut biome and it like will actually change behavior.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think that, um, you know, we're like, hey, we've mapped out the brain. Uh, That's not the same as understanding it or understanding like what the chemical responses are doing, how neural pathways are actually formed and maintained is still a science we're learning. So we don't know how we work yet.
0: Yeah. Anyone who tells you they do is full of shit.
1: Well, or just they haven't looked into it enough yet. They've looked into it a lot. Not enough.
0: (laughs) Um, how do you determine what good behavior is?
1: I think that I have a personal set of boundaries and expected reciprocated consideration. Mm -hmm. And that's very individual to me. And the best I can do is communicate that to the people around me. If it's been adequately communicated, I define good behavior as someone respecting all of that, um, in terms of other things, I kind of don't like to be presumptuous on morality mm. for anyone. Mm-hmm. I'm a kind of um, malice, being malicious. Mm. Like if you are doing something for mean reasons, to be malicious, to be destructive, to be harmful, uh, that's bad behavior.
0: Mm. Uh, there was a sort of philosophical question that came up in... Uh, like on a Facebook thing as it usually does, Uh, (laughs) which is like there was a tweet that said that people are always looking for someone or a group of people that they can be cruel to. Is there a group or a person that it is acceptable to be cruel towards? And how would you justify it?
1: (laughs) Right, right. I think... It depends on your definition of cruelty. Mm. I think that that is often a statement made in justification of hierarchy. Mm. The idea that in order to be elevated, someone has to be underneath Mm. um, and a resistance to a flat plane, like a resistance to actual equality, um, I think often motivates that Um, people People find themselves in difficult situations and they will often compromise on a bad decision to avoid what they view as a worse consequence. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think that people justify a lot to like the ends justify the means kind of vibe. Um, I don't think that cruelty in the way that I would describe it is ever needed. I think sometimes it's unavoidable in the human experience, mm-hmm. definitely to experience, but to inflict um I think it, you you learn to not be cruel. Yeah. Kids definitely aren't born with empathy, mm. but but I guess to say um, I think vengeance, vindication, cruelty are not actually necessary. I think that you can achieve contentment, closure, without inflicting anything upon anyone. Um, I think that defensiveness and aggression in terms of like assertiveness are all good things. And retribution is sometimes unavoidable. Mm. But I don't think that you have to be cruel to anyone. And I don't think there's any group where it's like acceptable to be cruel to them, unless it's people who have been cruel to you. And even then, I
0: don't think cruelty is the right answer. Yeah, cool. (laughs) and i think that was a better expansion of where the good behavior question thank goes. you
1: <laughs> i'll eventually find it
0: <laughs> um and then yeah how do we reduce the division between people if that is a goal that you have
1: yeah how about we just allow division to be more deliberate Educate people. Give more free will. Let people make decisions with accurate information. I think that people are becoming aware of how controlled and limited our exposure has been as Mm -hmm. social groups. Um, and people are coming to break down those barriers, but exposure is the only thing. Travel, education, real unbiased knowledge, or several biased sources so that you can land in an unbiased middle, um, I think that's the only answer.
0: Yeah. Uh, I guess this seems a little unrelated to the sequence of questions that I have, but uh, you've traveled some in your life. And so, like, you started in southeastern Oklahoma and you went to Stillwater, and you mentioned that you were in uh, Oregon. So, like, how have those different places and people that you have experienced shaped how you perceive the world and people? In yeah. General?
1: I traveled to Oregon a few times, like made the West Oklahoma to West Coast drive Mm -hmm. a couple times. The exposure to actual rural living in America is insane. Like driving Mm -hmm. past a camper and thinking that there's no way someone could live there because it looks very debilitated. And then when you drive past again, there's fresh clothes on the line Mm -hmm. and it's like 50 miles to a gas station either way. Mm -hmm. Um, And you just have... I began to realize the vast differences between the ways that people lived and then the very sobering similarities between the ways that people lived
2: Yeah.
1: in, in America. And it made me realize how big the world was and how recent a lot of our social mirage has been.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> We're all very similar and different as well.
1: Right. I do think your environment drastically shapes who you turn into and the impact of living in like a mountain state versus the plains mm. is very evident. Yeah. And living near somewhere like California versus somewhere like Texas as your major population centers was impactful as well. I just, um, I really think the main thing that I realized was how limited we are to class and education and like what choices you're even given.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Do you believe humans are evil by nature?
2: Mm.
1: No, I believe that we are adaptive. Mm -hmm. I think that we are constantly trying to evolve and change Mm -hmm. because we are living creatures. Um, I think that we all have a great capacity for evil and good within us and that it depends on what you cultivate.
0: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) What do you think humanity is heading towards in the future? (laughs) Oh,
1: God. <laughs> I try heavily not to think
2: about
0: it.
1: <laughs> uh, I, um, you know, lately something I've been struggling with was in the 90s and early 2000s being a kid, climate change was very relevant to me. Like I was a kid who went to the zoo and the aquarium a lot when I had the opportunities. I went to the library all the time. I read a lot. I often watched nature documentaries. Um I didn't realize that that was an uncommon experience or exposure. Mm -hmm. I very much believed in science and climate change Mm -hmm. from the time that I was very small. Mm -hmm. Um, I cannot believe that at this point in my life, it is more debated than it was Mm -hmm. at that point, that people believe in it less and that I've seen its effects, not only in the wildfires in Oregon Mm -hmm. and the crazy heat waves that were happening while I was there and since, And also in the changing seasons of Oklahoma. So spanning half of a continent, um, almost like I am watching the real life, my lifetime span effects of climate change and how it's eroding our earth. Just to say, I hope that there are people within power who will not allow us to crumble into oblivion while Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos race to Mars. But at the same time, I am aware that that looks like where it's pointed for a minute. I'm really, really relying on the fact that humans are adaptive and as parasitic as we are, it makes no sense to kill your host. So I'm very, very hopeful that we will head towards a drastic progress, social change and change on our view of technology and a rejection of a lot of the more traditional approaches to business and environmentalism so that we can have a future.
0: Yeah. (laughs) um and then I because of that I put this question after it what are you optimistic about for our future
1: I am optimistic about the fact that that there's still a lot of good to be done that there's still a lot of small happiness that I'm optimistic that I will probably find personal contentment, as selfish as that is, Mm. that we will probably not become a giant flaming ball of death at any point while I'm around to see it. Um, So I'm optimistic about that. I really, really am optimistic about countries other than America Mm. and what they've been developing and how maybe some of the bright minds that have been a little more restricted by policy here might connect on a global level as the need becomes such.
0: Yeah. Cool. <laughs>
1: You're like, what are you optimistic about? And I'm like, God, apparently not much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, I mean, we're millennials. It's not like we have been given the best hand.
1: Right. Like, if I look at all of the evidence, I really am optimistic about the fact that none of it's been too much yet. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to get the opportunity to keep going. Hopefully.
0: <laughs> Like, what's good? Uh, We're not dead yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm just—I feel a big connection (laughs) to the uh, primal desire to not be dead.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which, again, is an improvement over history. Mm -hmm. Sure, (laughs) yeah.
0: Uh, There's a— there's an arc now, <laughs> though. <laughs> it used to just go up. Oh, yes. Now it's starting to not go up.
1: <laughs> um. There are a lot of days. It is quite a privilege to have to suffer through all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I honestly am just so much more happy and optimistic than I was this time two years ago. Um. As bad as everything has been, as bad as COVID has been, as bad as the pandemic was, and the impacts of certain legislation, and as slowly as we seem to be improving from those standards, it's still better than I felt in
0: 2017. Cool. (laughs) I'm glad you feel better than (laughs) then. What makes you content?
1: Peacefulness. I really, really enjoy... Feelings of safety, security, openness, vulnerability. So right now, when I picture being content, I am on my couch in my apartment with my dog listening to music and painting something. Cool.
0: <laughs> what uh, What kind of paint?
1: Um, I paint miniatures and figurines a lot. I got into DD a bit over COVID, and so I have a little miniature painting kit. Right now, I'm painting a bunch of fairy garden figurines. Awesome. Just cuts, man.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I asked that clarifying question. <laughs> Thank you. When will you be satisfied?
2: I
1: don't know if I ever will be. I, when you, to drop back to music, When you talk about stuff that I I write about, a common theme in a lot of my songs is this idea that I I have like this deep longing, dissatisfaction, wanting drive of something and that I really only feel that kind of satisfaction. Largely when I'm performing and in a really good vein, Mm -hmm. but at other times when I'm just really in the pursuit of something that I'm very passionate about. And, you know. That's one of the sad things about adulthood is that that list gets bigger and smaller at the same time. Like your passions become divided mm-hmm. and, and change. But um, I don't know if I'll ever be satisfied. I guess that when I, when I am, I'll be ready. I'll be settled.
0: <laughs> As assuming that satisfaction is a permanent state. Right. Well, that's to me,
1: contentment, satisfaction, Mm -hmm. I guess. I guess I'm often satisfied with things, but I, yeah, general satisfaction.
0: Mm. (laughs) What advice do you have for people in general? Obviously, outside of the qualifier, that is the like, we are young people and are not qualified to give advice. Of
2: course.
1: Go to therapy. Get a, get a therapist, get, get one that you like. If you get one and you don't like them, get a new one. Keep doing that until you have someone that resonates with you. Um, It is a difficult thing to understand your own brain and you are not the only person who aided in its creation or forming. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to need outside help sometimes to Mm -hmm. sort it out. Don't believe uh, every thought that you have as fact or as your own, Mm -hmm. I guess just to say, question authority, (laughs) even your own, (laughs) and don't be afraid to be wrong Mm -hmm. or to mess up and understand that your life is a process in which you are actively creating something constantly and that hopefully there's no end goal or final satisfaction until you're done. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Uh, there's a quote, and I have long since forgotten who said it, but you wouldn't climb Mount Everest without a guide. So why should you do life without a guide either?
1: Right, yeah. right. And I think that to um, diversify your sources, mm-hmm. like in anything, if you want to become more educated or learn something, like read from more than one author, Listen to more than one expert. Um, And I think that that's just to say, don't do everything that one authority figure has told you to do, even if it's the Sky Daddy, you know.
0: Stop listening to Joe Rogan.
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) Gosh, just just more like listen to Joe Rogan. But like, why does his opinion mean more than yours? You're doing the same thing as him. I promise.
0: (laughs) last question potentially most importantly cake or pie
1: (laughs) um to eat cake to make pie
0: Ooh, that's i think that's the first time i've gotten that distinction um and i guess what is best of either then
2: Mm -hmm.
1: i like the cake itself like not the frosting Mm -hmm. if that makes sense i would rather like
0: kind of cake but yeah
1: Oh, That makes sense. Um, anything chocolate is right up my alley, and then for pie, I make berry pies a lot. Um, but my pie crust is kind of my specialty.
0: Sweet, awesome, Bailey. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you. Where can we find you and your things?
1: I am on Instagram at Bailey Gill. I am on Facebook as my name, but I'm usually not on it. And I am on SoundCloud as Bailey Gilbert. I have an EP 616 out that's like all acoustic stuff. And that's kind of it for if you're trying to find me right now.
0: Yeah. Uh, But I mean, I guess you can also check out like, the deli and other places where you know yeah if you want to
1: find me non-virtually i'll be at the delis the first monday of every month with chloe beth and hannah edmondson um i'll be at the bonnet i think on august 6th Mm. but yeah
0: yeah i'm not sure when this episode is going up but you know (laughs) future past tense i'm glad you enjoyed the show or i hope it's a great one
1: Thank you. Thank you. It was a very nice Schrodinger show.
0: (laughs) Um, Cool. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm Santiago Ramones.
1: I'm Bailey Gilbert, and this is my song Premeditated. If you like it, there's other stuff on SoundCloud.
2: Picked up your bad habits Cause I need to hold you Even just the worst parts I'm taking you out on my lungs But if they start to shrivel up Maybe they'll set a trend for my foolish heart I was never what you wanted Just sit there. Idolize a new direction Weaponize your indecision You don't mind not knowing what you say mean Ration your affection Keep your praises intermittent I'm an addict at a slow
0: find everything that I do on my website santiagoramones.com I make music and produce audio I have an EP, a short album, that is streaming everywhere right now. It's called Soundbites The music you're hearing right now is from Soundbites Listen to it on Spotify, Apple Music and anywhere else you stream music or buy it on Bandcamp because a single purchase is the monetary equivalent of streaming it all day every day for a year I'm also working on another album so if you'd like to hear that at some point, you can buy my music or you can support me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Santiago Ramones. Follow me on Instagram to stay up to date with all the stuff that I'm doing, both at bit.depth and at Santiago Ramones music. There's also a discord server in which we discuss deep topics from the podcast, but it's also a community of beautiful human beings. Go to Santiago Ramones.com slash discord to join. If you like the podcast, leave comments on social media, leave reviews by saying how much you like the podcast, and tell your friends about it. I really couldn't be doing this without you, and I am so very grateful to continue doing BitDepth for this long. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting BitDepth. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong.